welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Matt Carpenter on August 29th, Lord's Day Service. Our text this morning, the book of Leviticus, chapter 9. We will read verses 1 through 5, and then verses 22 through 24. Leviticus, chapter 9. And it came to pass... On the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a young bull as a sin offering, and a ram as a burnt offering, without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And to the children of Israel you shall speak, saying, Take a kid of the goats as a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both of the first year, without blemish, as a burnt offering. Also a bull and a ram as peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil. For today the Lord will appear before you. So they brought what Moses commanded at the tabernacle of meeting. And all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. Verse 22, Then Aaron lifted his hand toward the people, blessed them, and came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Let us pray. Our Lord and God, when we consider the door that is opened, the way to you, we give you all glory. Cause us now to see, to behold, and to rejoice with full and glad hearts the work that you have accomplished through Christ our Savior. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. I remember several years ago, Peter Lightheart, who has preached here a couple of times, said before he began a series on Leviticus that he knew if you ever start preaching a series through Leviticus, you'd better have a good reason to do so. Well, I'm not going to spend all the time this morning explaining the reasons for preaching through Leviticus, but I can assure you that this book is filled with more wonderful, glorious, and life-changing things, at least than I have encountered before. When we approach Leviticus, we usually see it as a book of sacrifices, rituals, and moral laws, ancient requirements that thankfully no longer apply to us. 
But Leviticus is not just a book of antiquated teaching. It is a book of formation. When God was forming a people for Himself, He gave them the Torah. And they had to, part of receiving this was that they had to unlearn, if you'll allow me to use a non-existent word, to unlearn the ways of the world and learn the ways of God. The people needed more than just teaching. They had to be shaped. They had to be formed as God's people. Genesis and Exodus are books of mostly stories. Genesis tells the story of God calling, of creating and calling His people. Exodus continues that story and then it concludes with the instructions for building the house, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle where God would meet His people. Leviticus establishes the worship, the practices or the rituals, and the holiness codes that create a new culture of Yahweh's people. We, we see this message summarized in the first five verses of Leviticus 18. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you, you shall not do. Nor shall you walk in their ordinances. For you shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord." These laws are not intended just to make Israel different from the other nations. They had learned when they were in Egypt, they had learned the ways of Egypt. You see this in the book of Joshua when, it, when they were told by Joshua explicitly, you must put away the idols that you were serving in Egypt. But the message of Leviticus, Le Leviticus itself being kind of the pinnacle of the Pentateuch, of the five books, you have Genesis and Exodus. Leviticus is the top of the mountain. And then Numbers and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy restates the story of the people of God just as Genesis tells the story of the people of God. Leviticus is the point at which we learn how man comes to God. The sacrifices, the moral code, the priesthood, the division of clean and unclean things, even the economic practices of Leviticus, we see in these the path for man to again dwell, to live in the presence of the Almighty. That's one of the most common sentiments in the Psalms. What we read throughout the Psalms uh, that the writer says he has a desire to live with God, to be in God's presence, to eternally abide in His house. We know Psalm 23, beginning, the Lord is my shepherd. We're all familiar with that. 
But do you remember the end of Psalm 23? He says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That was David's desire. He wanted to live in the house of God. Now, w w there wasn't a temple then. David's not saying, I, I want to just hang out at the temple all the time. He's a king. So there's more to this. David is saying not even that he wants to just live around the tabernacle. David wants to return to the place, to the abode of God. He wants something that men in the past had lost. The same thing in Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Can you hear the desire in David's voice? He's not, he doesn't care about looking socially acceptable in these psalms. He says, forget that. No worries about being prim and proper. His heart is, I desire to live with God. Everything else can go. And I hope you have experienced a similar longing. The desire to be with God. Now, now we can think of that in a, in a negative way because we know that, that you know, if, it, if we're isolated all the time, that, then that's, that's not good. So, no, David's not saying that, and he, that we should desire to just be alone for the rest of our lives. He's not calling for solitary monkhood. But wouldn't it be wonderful to abide forever in the light, the joy, and the strength of God working directly for Him in whatever it is that He made you to do, doing the things that you do the best, that gives you the most joy, and to serve under Almighty God with His glory surrounding you and working with fellow saints all in this. That desire, if you've ever had that, that desire is not something that's just natural. That is a desire from Almighty God to be with Him. The Hebrews knew, that God's people knew that He lived, that God lived on His holy mountain. But they couldn't go there anymore. That way was cut off. From the very beginning, we see a pattern. We see God taking man out of the chaos. Sometimes that's, that's the waters. Sometimes that can be the wilderness. But He takes man out of the chaos. Even in Genesis 1, He takes man out of the, the waters into His holy mountain. He takes him in the garden to be with Himself. But man consistently chooses another path. I mean, we may think, if I had all of those things that Adam had, I would not have sinned. Not so fast. Every one of us would have fallen just as hard. And they would just be, it would just be by a different name. So I'm 
I'm glad it's Adam and not Matt that everybody knows as being the one who led all mankind into sin. But we see again with Adam, he comes out of the waters, he is brought to Eden, and then when in his fall his descendants go into exile, Cain was exiled. We see it with Noah. He was brought out of the waters, placed in a restored land. But then his offspring fell, not only Ham, but also even Nimrod and his, all who were with him at Babel, they fell and again managed dispersed. And then Abraham, he was called out of paganism. He was called to the promised land, and his descendants were exiled into, were exiled in Egypt. So now the people of God are again, they've just come out of the waters of the Red Sea. God has just brought his people again. Do you, do you pick up on this? This is a wonderful picture. God brought them out again. They've come through the waters, and now they're still in the wilderness, though. They had to be taught. They had to be shaped as God's people. And that's what Leviticus is. It teaches and it forms Israel as God's people. Before the Torah, they did not have the revealed law. Imagine living your life without having a Bible that you can just you know, pick up off your shelf and turn to. They had the story. They had oral tradition handed down to them. They had the law of God revealed in nature. There were certain things that was clearly revealed, divinely revealed. They remembered Yahweh's covenant with them, going back to Abraham, and they knew the importance of the land. Something that they understood was the, the idea of, of important space, of sacred space, a piece of land that is special because God is there. The distinction between holy, the holy, and the common is introduced. And, and it's not just introduced in Leviticus. We, we see that in Leviticus, but that distinction even comes to us in Genesis when after Adam and Eve fell, what did God do? He sent them out of the place where His presence was and He put a cherubim with a flaming sword that blocked the way. That is the dwelling of God. We see sacred space at the burning bush when God spoke to Moses. God called him, and he also called the land where he was, what? Holy ground. This is a place where the Almighty dwells. The Israelites knew you better not take it upon yourself, though, to go to this holy ground. Man could not approach God. What would happen, do you think, if anyone had actually tried to go back into Eden when that cherubim was there? It would not have ended well for the man. Do you remember Uzzah? the one who is commissioned, among several others, to bring the ark back. 
and then they were bringing it back the wrong way. The ark was the it was the it was holy. It was holy space. It was considered the space where God Himself was. And so when the ark starts to tumble, and Uzzah puts his hand out to steady it, what happens? He doesn't get a good job, guy. He dies. Now come on, think with me. How many of us have ever thought, that's mighty unfair? He's just trying to help. God takes serious the distinction between what is holy and what is common. And the place where God dwells is holy. Or maybe you remember the mountain when God spoke to Moses when Moses was on the mountain, and he told Moses that anyone who touched the mountain must be killed. Even an animal who touches the mountain of God must be killed. God protected his sacred space. <clears throat> Ever since Adam was exiled from the garden, man was not allowed to come into God's presence of his own accord. God could come, God did come to man at times, but man could not go to God. Now, yes, man could pray, okay? I'm not saying he can't pray. We, we've always had that privilege. But going to the place where God dwells was off limits. As Michael Morales points out, quote, we may understand the movement of Leviticus as the drama of how the dwelling of God, the tabernacle that is, becomes a tent of meeting for God's people. God emphasizes three elements when teaching Israel how to dwell, how to return to His presence. Throughout this book, we, we can see these three. He emphasizes sacrifices. He emphasizes ritual purity and holiness. The first nine chapters, Leviticus 1 through 9, begins with a system of sacrifices and offerings. And there's actually a difference between a sacrifice and an offering. They're not always the same thing. We'll talk more about that in future weeks. But in these sacrifices, God tells Moses how the priests and the common people are to approach Him. They approach Him through offering animals, grain, and incense. God explains how those sacrifices and offerings will be brought, and it has to come from the holy, the set-apart representative, the priest. So the common person could bring the sacrifice to the tabernacle, having killed it and prepared it, but the priest was the one who would actually apply the blood. In this God, though, was telling His people, this is how you can come to Me, because now the sacred space, the tabernacle, there's an allowance for people to come before God. That was a definite upgrade from what they had before. In the second section, chapters 10 through 16, we see the, the distinction about laws of purity and division. These laws define the difference between clean and unclean, between holy and common, and the need to keep boundaries between the two. 
Ritual impurity implies death. And no one who is ritually impure, no one who, has, who is associated in any way with death, whether you touch a dead body, whether you have touched a dead animal, whether the fluids of life in some way have left you, if you, you know, if you touch someone who is bleeding, if you were, were ritually defiled by blood, you couldn't go into God's presence. Doesn't mean, you're, doesn't mean you're in sin, doesn't mean that God hates you, but you are unclean. He's making this distinction clear. In those cases, there is a purification offering, which would involve water, the person being washed, but also an animal offering. You remember when, when in the book of Luke, when Mary and Joseph take Jesus into the temple and then you, we, we read about Anna and about Simeon? Okay. They were at the temple because it was a time, it says, of Mary's purification. She was offering the purification offering after having a male child. That was the reason for their going. These laws remind us of the need to be cleansed from impurity. And this is something certainly that Paul and Peter and others will talk about. And this section in Leviticus culminates in the all-important Day of Atonement. The, the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, is the high point of Leviticus. It is the most important portion in this entire book. When the one day of the year, when the priest, the high priest, would go into the holiest place and make an offering unto the Lord, and the people are reminded both of their newfound place with God and of the holiness of God. The last portion, chapter 17 through 27, God teaches His people what holy living looks like. It includes moral laws acceptable sacrifices, the celebrations or the feasts of the year, punishments for certain crimes, Sabbath laws, not only for people, but even for the land, and then finally, the Jubilee year. Forming a people means teaching them how to not only honor God, but also how to love our neighbor. And even though the law can sometimes smack to us as being harsh, how did you learn to do what is right without your parents or someone telling you, do this, don't do that? Now, was that kind? Was that a gift or not? Having taught in public schools, I can tell you that it's not a gift to others when a child is not taught the difference between right and wrong. We, we know this is the case. Paul says that loving one another means we fulfill the moral law, Romans 13, 8. Owe no man nothing but to love one another. Love is the fulfillment of the law. The law goes beyond our worship, that is our sacrifices and offerings, to include the way we treat others and even the stories we tell. The feasts that they would have all told a story of what they had come out from and what they were moving towards. You see, living before God is not only about right worship, that is the sacrifices and offerings. It's not only about ritual purity, 
but it's moral purity. A life that is upright before God. Now again, when we look back at the laws, we can think these sound really harsh. But to the ancient Israelite, this is, it, it's not harsh. When you consider what they had come out from in Egypt, God was telling them in this book, this is the way to return. Do you want to dwell with me? Do you want to come and be with me? This is how to do it. In this Leviticus is God's invitation to his people, come home. Come to me. These laws were radically liberating to the Israelites, who before knew only bondage and a distant God. Never before had man been allowed to approach on his own initiative God's holy space. For them, the old covenant law was a gracious gift. But despite this gift, Israel still could not keep it. When you look at how they actually fulfilled the law, it was not very good. I mean, if, if you were offering a report card, which is not time for that in the school year yet, but if you were giving them a report card, it would be pretty low. They, like us, couldn't be formed on their own. They couldn't form themselves. They couldn't do enough to make themselves a new people. They needed someone to keep the law for them. We still live in a time when people long for God's presence. And again, I hope you desire and long for God's presence. Without God, we are like Israel, wandering in the wilderness. Before we can be formed, we must be transformed. And that requires a great sacrifice. Not a daily sacrifice, which the priest would offer on behalf of all of God's people. But a sacrifice that could be once for all. The path to God's presence, illuminated in small degrees by the Levitical laws, was revealed in bright glory at the coming of Jesus Christ. As good, as wonderful as this system was, it could not do what Jesus could. That is, bring us to God and keep us there. We read in Leviticus 9 how the Lord came, His presence came and dwelt with His people. But it was temporary. He, that is Christ, is the path, the way to the presence of the Father. He is the Logos who brings order to our chaos. He is the pure high priest who took our uncleanness. He is the Lamb who offered 
who is offered to atone for our sin. He is the one who ushers in the year of Jubilee single-handedly, who frees the captives, who restores the land to us. He is the one who brings us back to God and sends us out empowered by the Spirit as priests into His world. A world that's being transformed. And we only see it in bits right now. But it's coming. It's coming. We are now even being transformed by the grace of God. And we have the hope of Him accomplishing what He says in the book of Malachi. That the Son of Righteousness will arise with healing in His wings. And you will go forth like cattle in the stall and tread down your enemies. That's what happens when God's people dwell in the presence of God. God's glory cannot be stopped. Brothers and sisters, there is not just encouragement, there is hope we can find in the book of Leviticus. But as we consider this hope, know this. If you are looking for the path to God, it's been given. And it's in the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we thank You for the gift of life through Christ our Savior. May we receive that and grow indeed as cattle in the stall who will tread down your enemies. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.